0: Hi, Journey. How y'all doing today? You look great. It's a privilege to be with every single one of you, especially if you're a guest, maybe here for the first time. We're particularly honored to be in God's presence and get to worship Him with you. I feel pretty strongly that that video captures really, really well the heart of this book called Romans from the Bible that we're starting into today. And I have to tell you at the outset that preaching from Romans is a daunting task. Maybe the most daunting task of my preaching life. For the weeks that have been leading up to this series as I was prepping stuff for creative teams so they could make videos like that and musical teams so that they could work on what they work on, I would hand them one of the assignments that I have to turn... I have assignments that I have to turn in to them showing them where I think the Lord's taking us through Romans and I'd hand them a message outline or something and I'd say every time, are you really, Brian, going to do this? Seriously. Way better pastors than you have spent years preaching through the book of Romans, and you're going to survey it in eight weeks. You're crazy. You're crazy. So I'm telling you at the outset that preaching through the book of Romans in eight weeks, two chapters a week, is looming like Mount Everest and has been for a few months now. I also have to tell you that the book of Romans is one of the most formative books of my entire Christian life. As a high school kid, I would sit under the teaching of my youth pastor and hear him teach from Romans 6, 7, and 8, and I'll never forget it. And it wasn't just about the interesting things that he taught us, rather it was an encounter with God that I had through Romans six, 7, 8. you'd even throw five in there if you wanted to, and I discovered through that teaching exactly who I was, who I am in Christ this astounding and beautiful reality that the Christian's identity is found only and entirely and fully in Christ. It's all in Christ. I'll never forget that. It's shaped me and changed me to this very day, and it's going to continue to shape me and change me. So Romans has been looming, and as it's been looming, I've been praying for you, and I've been praying for me, and I've been praying for us that this wouldn't just be about us sort of racing through another book of the Bible so we've got another one down, right? Rather, I've been asking God to use Romans to transform us literally to the core of our being. I've been praying that God would save people as we work through Romans. I've been asking God to transform us as we work through Romans. That he would transform us in such a way, though, that we're indelibly marked as a result of this encounter with our great and amazing and stalwart and immovable and all-encompassing and our supreme God who frankly is in the transformation business and who transforms us for the purpose of living as his agents and living as his ambassadors. That's why he changes us. And so for us, it gets real practical. That means we don't just get to gather in here, sit in here, learn nice stuff about Romans, go out those doors saying, well, that was interesting. Not at all. I say this, and it comes strong, but understand it's with love. If you want to learn interesting stuff about Romans, go buy a commentary on Romans and read it. This isn't about learning interesting things. That isn't why we gather like this. It's not why anybody declares the word of the Lord like we're doing here. This is about us seeking the transformative touch of God on our hearts the transformative touch of God on our lives, so that we go out those doors and get this, plunge headlong into everything that God's inviting and calling and challenging us to be all about as we live life his way, with his purposes, on his mission, with his passions, with his fervor, partnering with him to do whatever it takes to connect people to him. So you see, Romans had better send us send us more and more and more on the mission of God, or we've missed the entire point. So let's dive in. Romans chapter 1, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, all the text will be on the screens for you as well. This might be a good series for you to bring your Bibles in particular too, as we dive in through chapter by chapter by chapter over the course of the next eight weeks. Just for the record, Romans was never written as a book or a chapter in a book or part of a book. It was written as a letter from a guy named the Apostle Paul, a guy named Paul, who was an apostle, one of the greatest Christians who ever lived, and he wrote this letter to the church, to the Christians, where? That was so lukewarm. (laughs) Where? There you go hardy. Good job. The ancient city of Rome, which was the greatest city, the greatest empire in the entire world. And if you read the introduction of Romans, the first verses of Romans, you notice that Paul extends quite a lengthy greeting. And you see that, I'll show it to you in just a second, and you ask the question of why. Let me set this up. More than likely, the greeting is so extended because Paul's sending this letter to the Roman church who he has absolutely no personal relationship with whatsoever. So he's sort of got to go out of his way to establish for the Roman church who he is and every single thing he's about. I got the chance this last week to write a letter for a family in our church helping them raise money for an international adoption that they're participating in. I knew that they were going to send this letter to people all over the place who have absolutely no idea who I am. All they know is they're getting this envelope from some guy named Brian Hopkins who's asking them to help our friends by giving a huge sum of money to them. So I'm a complete stranger out of nowhere in their mailbox asking them for a big sum of money to help these people accomplish this international adoption. So what did I have to do? I had to go way out of my way to explain who I am, what I'm about, why in the world I was writing this letter to them, asking them for a pile of money on behalf of our mutual friends. Paul sort of does the same thing here. Look at the introduction. Romans 1, 1 through 1-7, this extended greeting. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. Now what you should be thinking right now is, whoa, verse 1, of Romans 1 is very pregnant, incredibly pregnant. That's, whoa, and we're going to come back to that in a minute. Let's keep going for now. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the holy scriptures. The good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line, He was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's none other. He's Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Christ, God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles, now you know what a Gentile is? A Gentile is a non-Jew. Most of you are Gentiles. Anybody who's not of Jewish descent is a Gentile. That's me, that's most of us. He's given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so they'll believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. And you're included among those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. I'm writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God, called to be his own holy people. May God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. And right out of the gates, you just feel the weight of Romans chapter 1, particularly verse 1. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. Paul's declaring Look, I'm God's guy. Everything I do, everything I'm about, it's about God. It revolves around, it's centered on, it's focused on, it's rooted in God. He calls himself a slave, for crying out loud. If you call yourself a slave, what are you saying? You're saying, I'm not my own. You call yourself a slave, you're saying, I am not my own. I belong to someone else, and Paul says, I belong to Jesus Christ. I'm his slave, which is really a profound declaration of who he is and what he's about. And that ought to land with a sort of a convicting thud on us, hadn't it? Because honestly, when was the last time you thought of yourself as a slave of Christ Jesus? When was the last time you thought of yourself as a slave of Christ Jesus? And you start to sort of tick through that and what that means and it gets a little frightening because we know if we start thinking that way, saying that, identifying ourselves with that slave of Christ Jesus, there's very serious ramifications around that declaration. But we ought not be scared of that declaration. And so let me challenge you with this. What if today, like right now, you started considering your life, everything that Paul calls himself in Romans chapter 1, verse 1? What if you just tried that, like walked through it? What if you just started defining your life like this way right here? I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. I'm not my own. How's that change the way you think about stuff? How's that change the way you approach life? I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. And then I just encourage us to keep going, identifying ourselves by the same things that Paul calls himself. Keep defining our lives by everything he says about him. I belong to him. That's what Paul says. I belong to him. I'm called by him, chosen by God. I'm sent out to preach his good news. You are, I am, we all are, all of those things. Imagine the transformation in our lives just by that identification, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on in the next seven verses through verse 15, and he expresses to the Roman church how much he wishes he could be there with them. He wants to go see them. And here's what he says. Let me first say that I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith in him, this is cool, is being talked about all over the world. The faith of the Roman church was being talked about all over the known world in this day. That's cool. God knows how often I pray for you, Paul says, day and night. I bring you and your needs in prayer to God, whom I serve with all my heart by spreading the good news about his son. One of the things I always pray for is the opportunity, God willing, to come at last and see you. For I long to visit you so I can bring you some spiritual gift that will help you grow strong in the Lord. He wants to bring them something, a teaching, a spiritual gift that's going to help them grow strong in the Lord. When we get together, I want to encourage you in your faith. Then look at what he says. But I also want to be encouraged by yours. He's not just giving, he's receiving from them as well. And I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, I planned many times to visit you. I was prevented until now. I want to work among you and see spiritual fruit just as I have seen among other Gentiles, other non-Jews. For I have a great sense of obligation to people both in the civilized world and in the rest of the world to the educated and the uneducated alike. So I'm eager to come to you in Rome too to preach the good news. And you read that chunk of Romans and you just hear Paul's white hot fervor for sharing the gospel. That's what he's about. He's about sharing the gospel. He's just zealous to preach the gospel. And folks, Paul ought to be our model for sharing Jesus with people. Paul ought to be our model for sharing Jesus with people. I've been around the church a long time. And after a lot of years I believe that one of the greatest fear one of the greatest fears that any Christian carries is being called upon to share their faith with people. It causes Christians just to like quake in their boots. So many Christians just sort of lock up. No, I can't do that. I'm too scared. What would I say? I'm going to screw it all up and I'm going to make God look dumb. We just like ah. I'll go to Africa. Just don't make me share my faith one-on-one across a coffee shop table with somebody. I'll tithe until the cows come home. Just don't make me share my faith, right? We'll do a lot of other things. Just, we just freak out about sharing our faith. But get this. Our sadness at the thought of our friends and neighbors and colleagues and brothers and sisters and moms and dads, aunts, uncles, roommates, classmates, and just keep making the list of all the people in your life who are significant to you. Our sadness at seeing their faces the faces of people who we love and care about so much, people who we absolutely know don't yet have a personal relationship with Christ, the sadness at seeing them spend forever apart from God, that ought to be our motivation to get over any fear we have about sharing Jesus with anybody. I can just let that burn on you. And Paul, you're going to see all through Romans, Paul's going to invite us again and again and again. Will you please be as fervent about sharing the gospel as I am Paul says. Just get about sharing Jesus with people because when you do, God's glorified. Anytime we share our faith with anybody, whether they come to faith or not, God's glorified. He's projected bigger and bigger and bigger for the world to see. And as Christians, frankly, we're supposed to be proud of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that might have just sort of grated across the grain of some of you, because you're like, pride? We're Christians. We're not supposed to be proud. That sin isn't it. Let me show you. Watch this. 1, 16 and 17. The theme verses of the entire book of Romans, Romans 1, 16 and 17, probably familiar to some of you. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first, and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. That is the theological term, by the way, justification. I'm not going to unpack it for you today, but that's this. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. Justification, that's the word. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. This is faith. It's a faith journey. It's by faith. As the scriptures say, it's through faith and faith alone you could insert that a righteous person has life. Theme verses of the entire letter to the church at Rome. Now we know from everything we've read to this point that Paul's passionate about preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Why in the world then does he make that statement, I'm not ashamed of the good news? Paul wrote 13 different letters to 13 different churches. We don't see any indication in any of them that he's ever ashamed of the gospel. So what in the world is he doing there? It's this. He's emphasizing something by placing it into the negative. We do this all the time. Sometimes we say, he's not a bad athlete. We do that. Or we say, she's not a bad singer or whatever he or she happens to be. And what we're saying is, he's a pretty good athlete and she's a pretty good singer by putting it into the negative. And so Paul, through this unique literary device, is saying, I'm proud of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel, it's my life as a matter of fact. Now why would he do that? Because he recognizes that it's very likely that the Roman church might just be ashamed of the gospel. I think about it. Rome is the capital of the world. It's the seat of world culture and pride. And so to preach a God who became a man through a virgin birth, died a criminal on a cross, rose bodily from the dead, went to live in heaven, would return to earth one day, that would not have computed to these very, very sophisticated Roman people. In fact, the cross would have been particularly offensive to Romans. Only the worst types of criminals were crucified. Roman citizens were not even allowed to be crucified. It was degrading. It would have disgraced the empire for a Roman citizen to be executed like that. The people of Rome then, they would have been shocked. They would have been appalled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. How could a crucified criminal be the savior of the world? How in the world does that work? It was abhorrent. It would have been unthinkable. So you see, it would have been really easy for Paul's readers to have been ashamed of the gospel. What about you, your life, your conduct with the gospel? Have you ever been ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you ever taken the gospel, that part of you, and tucked it away, hid it away, instead of declaring it aloud because maybe you were scared of losing face or scared of losing friends or Scared of being labeled some sort of religious fanatic, scared of scorn, scared of losing business, scared of losing influence, ever been there? And Paul's saying, whether you have or not, he's saying, join me in being entirely unashamed of the gospel. Because look, the gospel is actually the power of God at work. It's about to show up. The power of God at work. (laughs) Not at work through me. I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. Look, it is the power of God at work. You know that though, don't you? So see, when you and I share our faith anytime, anytime, It isn't you at work, and that's why some of us get scared, because we feel all the pressure, we feel all the onus, we feel the burden, it's on us. I gotta be, like, perfect, but it's God at work. It's only God at work. You're the vessel, you're the mouthpiece, you're the storyteller, whatever you wanna call yourself. It's the power of God at work. So then why in the world would any of us ever apologize for invoking the power and blessing of God in someone's life? Nothing to be ashamed of, nothing. Now, put your seatbelt on, because we're going to go to a pretty dark place. Paul takes us there as he sketches out the universal need of salvation for every person on planet Earth. He's going to paint us a picture of how incredibly corrupt the world has become. Look at this. But God shows us, starting in verse 18, chapter 1. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And it gets worse. Hang on. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. Ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they know knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desire. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. There's a lot of theological gymnastics that are going on in much of the Christian church in the world today. To get us around the truth of that scripture isn't there. You can't do it. You you just can't. You go to the Greek, you go anywhere you want to go. Paul calls it out. Homosexual behavior is sin. Black and white, crystal clear. No gymnastics can get you around the truth, it's sin. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of, see how bleak this is? Haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning. And they disobey their parents to boot. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them and you look at that and you're like, oh my gosh, what in the world? What is that? I want to explain it to you this way. Picture a young man walking into a jewelry store. He's shopping for an engagement ring. He is very excited. He's standing nervously at the counter, peering through the glass top of the tray inside the glass case of beautiful diamonds. The salesman picked up that tray and, picked up some of his finer diamonds, holding each jewel individually up to the light. These diamonds were very quality stones, but the young man was not at all impressed. Not one of them caught his eye. Salesman, realizing he needed a new approach if he hoped to close the deal, he pulled a black velvet pad out of the drawer and he placed it on top of the counter. He used his tweezers and delicately picked up one of the choicest stones, laying it on the black backdrop. As he did that, all of the light in the room seemed to pour right through that stone, causing it to shine as it had never shown before. The guy was dazzled, especially because he had just seen this diamond moments earlier, but he had not seen it like this. All of the beauty of this precious stone was now dramatically enhanced, clearly showcased for him to behold. Nodding his head, approvingly, the young man declared to the salesman, this is the diamond I want to purchase. This is the diamond I want to put on the finger of my wife-to-be. So what was it exactly that changed the man's view of that diamond? Why did that costly gem, which only moments before had appeared so unimpressive, now sparkle like stars on a moonless night? In the jewelry business, they know the black background makes all the difference. When placed on a black counter, the black velvet causes the light overhead to radiate brilliantly through the stone, revealing true beauty, causing it to sparkle and shine so brightly. But you remove that black backdrop, and it's very, very difficult to see the diamond splendor, isn't it? Because, you see, it's the darkness that causes the stone to burst forth with dazzling light. And it's the exact same principle that's in play in the spiritual realm. In order for any of us, any person, to appreciate God's love, God's gift of salvation, God's gift of redemption, we must see it examined against the backdrop of his wrath and his hatred of sin. Only then do we see the flawless gem of the great love, God has for every single person on planet earth. But you take that black backdrop away. You remove the wrath of God that Paul expresses in chapter 1. You remove the understanding of God's hatred of sin, and our appreciation of the brilliance of his amazing gift fades away, doesn't it? The gem of the letter to the Romans is the gospel. It's the good news. It's the gem in any of our lives. But before any of us can really truly understand and appreciate the good news, we must understand the terrible news about our sin, my sin. And you see, Paul's attempting to get every single person lost in our sin so that we can then be found by the brilliant gem of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't want us walking out the other side of this text saying like, okay, I've done a few bad things here and there, but I'm pretty well okay. Paul doesn't want us walking out the other side of this text going like, yeah, I've lived a pretty good life and Jesus is sort of like the dollop of whipped cream on top that makes it ever so tasty. Paul wants us to emerge on the other side of this text understand this, with a feeling of utter desperation. I am utterly and entirely sinful, and there's nothing, and I mean nothing, that any of us can do to overcome that. It's only Jesus. I only need Jesus. Nothing else. Nothing else. Desperation for the Savior, the one and only Savior of the world, and His name is Jesus Christ, the gem of the gospel. And so you take this whole really brutal section of Romans 1 and you boil it down and there's a lot going on in there. Paul speaks of natural revelation. He talks about how even the create, and we get this, especially in Bozeman, we get this. Even the created order reveals God. The creation points to God. The creation signposts, arrows up to God. And you look at the list, the idolatry, sin, homosexuality, sin. This long list of sin, and he's declaring that is all of you, every single one of you. Nobody is excluded from this. We're all tainted by this. And he's saying this, any time that we ignore God's truth, and any time we defy God, and any time we sin instead of obeying God, God, you know what he says? He says, have it your way. Any time, Burger King stole that from God, by the way. (laughs) Any time we sin, any time we disobey God, he says, have it your way. God is completely and entirely and totally willing to allow us to reap everything that we're sowing. Have at it, he says. There's going to be consequences, but I'm allowing you to step into those. You can choose it if you want to. And Paul says that we all do, every one of us. Not a single person is excluded from the taint of sin, all of us do. And Paul says, when we do, because we do, God judges. God judges. Romans 2, 1 through 16. So remember what we just came out of there, this long lengthy run, all this sin, and then start of the next chapter. There wouldn't have been a chapter break, by the way, in the letter. That was inserted many years after Paul wrote this. Probably shouldn't have been broken there, but that's another matter for another day. And look what Paul says, coming out of just what he came out of, you may think that you can condemn such people. What's he getting on them for? Judging. You may think you can condemn such people, but you're just as bad. You're just as bad. And, Paul says, you have no excuse. When you say that they are wicked and should be punished, you're actually condemning yourself, for you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Watch this. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you. And some of us, we have a picture of God that he's sort of capriciously angry all of the time, right? That's who we think God is, some of us. He's just angry, he's wrathful, he's vengeful. Look, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you, Paul says. Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you're stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you're storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God will judge everyone. He will judge everyone according to what they've done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth, and instead live lives of wickedness. He will pour out his anger and wrath There will be trouble and calamity for anyone who keeps on doing what is evil. Trouble and calamity, God says, have at it. Have it your way. Trouble and calamity are coming, fairly worn. For the Jew first, also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good. For the Jew first, also for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. When the Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed, even though they never had God's written law. And the Jews who do have God's law will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. No justification just for hearing the law. It's obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they're doing right. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. Let me ask you this. Are you ready for your secret life to be judged? And so, after hearing about all of this blatant idolatry, immortality, wickedness of the pagan unbeliever from the previous section. Paul's assuming that there's gonna be some of his readers who are sort of sitting back very smugly going, glad I'm not like that. And how many of us have done the exact same thing? We've sat in the judgment seat. We've picked up the stones. We've thrown them. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, not so fast. In a hurry, Paul points A very big finger at self righteous religious people. And he says, You're guilty too, right here. Every single one of you is guilty. Yeah, you think you might not have indulged in some of the things on the list in that previous section, but Paul says, You sin. You have impure thoughts, impure motives, impure attitudes. You judge people. That's sin. And it could go on and on and on. Because you see, no matter how good we think we are as we smugly pass judgment on others, our sin condemns us before the perfect, holy, righteous, just God. No matter how good we think we are, we're not good enough. Not even close. And there's something true about us as human beings maybe especially human beings who are Christians, were really quick to offer to take the speck of sin out of somebody else's eye when, well, what do you know? We have a log in our own. This is a log, by the way. (laughs) And Paul says, stop. Stop being so oblivious to your own sin that's right here and deal with this. Deal with the log Way, 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 way before you ever approach somebody else about the speck of sawdust that's in their eye. And it might just be an eyelash. And here's what happens, and I'll close with this. When we stop judging others, when we address the log that's in our own eye, when we deal with our own sin, what happens is our attention shifts. And it shifts to the incredible kindness that God perpetually demonstrates to us, doesn't it? Because we're not caught up in everyone else's sin. We're just dealing with mine, and we're basking in the kindness and the patience and the tolerance that God extends to us, and we live in that place, don't we? Back to Romans 2, 4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Some of you know it. Some of you know it because you realize it every single moment of every single day, how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you. And today, God wants some more of you to know it and live in it. How wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God has been Is being with all of you, every single one of you. Why? His kindness is intended to turn you from your sins, to point you in a new direction, no longer opposed to God, but actually on God's side. And it isn't his capricious anger that's designed to turn you, it's his kindness. It's his tolerance. It's his patience. He wants all of us to know it, experience it, live in it. Will you take your stuff and set it aside, and I ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads if you would. Will you just go to prayer? Just interact with God around some of the things we've been talking about here. God, would you never, ever, ever let us forget your kindness and your tolerance and your patience with us. And oh God, as we think about your loving kindness that you extend every moment of every single day to us, I pray that that turns to worship of you. To us saying, Oh my gosh. God, look at what you've done. Look at what you're doing. Look at how you're long suffering with me. And God, I pray that we would be turned, that we would be turned from our sin pointed in a different geographic direction than we were headed, pointed toward you. Rushing headlong into you. Into your kindness, into your tolerance, into your patience. Oh God, never let us forget and maybe you're a person who's sitting in this room today and as you take a step back from life and as you set apart these minutes that we've been together and as you plumb the depths of your heart and your soul you realize that you have yet to experience the gem of the gospel of Jesus Christ you have yet to be redeemed by the power of God through Jesus who died, was buried, who was raised on the third day for you. And maybe in these minutes that we've been together, the Holy Spirit of God has been nudging your heart and maybe you actually saw yourself on the pages of Romans chapter one, maybe for the first time. Maybe for the first time you saw the darkness of your sin and you're coming out the other side of that desperate for the Savior. Not desperate for anything else, not just feeling a little guilty, desperate for the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, the only one who can save you from the consequence of your sin. And if that's you today, God's gift of salvation, Jesus' offer of the gospel, it stands for you today. The door is open. He's extending his free offer of salvation to you. But here's what that means. It means that as you come to Jesus, as you declare to him, you need him, you need the Savior, it means you're giving up whatever it is that's ruling your life right now. You're putting it down, all of it. And you're bending your knee to him. You're making Jesus your one and only king. You're devoting your total and complete allegiance to him. When you were opposed to him, you're not anymore. You're on his side. And if that is the desire of your heart today, you can actually step into Absolutely, step into the gospel of Jesus Christ today. You can do it by praying along with me a prayer that goes something like this. God, I repent. I see fully the darkness of my sin, God. And I see that the only remedy to my sin problem is the Savior, Jesus Christ. And I declare my allegiance to Him. I declare my love for Him. I declare my gratitude to Him for his death, burial, and resurrection in my place. Thank you, Jesus, for the freedom that you've brought to my life. Here I am, every last bit of me. Wash me, make me clean, make me new, make me whole. I'm yours, God, and I love you. And if you're a person who's here today and you're deciding to step into the gospel, the gem of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I want you to know that that is the biggest single decision of your entire life. Around here, it's such a big deal. We like to acknowledge when people make that decision. And I'm going to ask you to do that with me right now. Nobody's looking around this room. This is a personal, very personal, private moment. You, me, and God right now. If you're saying, I need Jesus today, would you just real boldly slip your hand up and lock eyes with me and just say, I'm saying yes to Jesus today. I'm making Jesus my Savior. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. You can do that now. Maybe you see yourself all over the pages of Romans chapter 1 and you're going, there's only one remedy and it's Jesus. One way. One remedy. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Way to go. Yes. 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 It's Jesus. It's just Jesus. Just make sure I catch your eye, if you would. I don't want to miss you. Oh God, we say thank you for these who are saying today, declaring today, I need you. And God, as they yield their hearts, yield their lives to you, would you root them in you? Would you surround them with people who will encourage you their fledgling faith, please God. Stir their hearts, spur them to love you with everything. Make the gospel their life's mission. And God, would you please center every last one of us on you, caught up in, consumed by, engrossed in you and only you We you. we so appreciate your loving kindness your long suffering your patience and God we commit we're not going to abuse it we're not going to take it for granted we're not going to presume upon it we just receive it with gratitude to the depths of our beings you are God we worship you In Jesus' name we pray this and everyone agreed and said.